Daily Talk, Long Island Life, National News, International Issues, through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call, the first and only wake up call that's ever been created, ever. I'm your host, Eddie Fitzgerald, and join with me, as always, my faithful, trusty co-host, a woman who is, I don't know, what should it, what should you be today, Sibyl? I think <laughs> that your demeanor is only matched by your outlook for life, Miss <laughs> Sibyl Rateau, a bright spot here at WRHU. Miss Sibyl, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I mean, this week was definitely kicking my butt, but you know what? It's all leading up to morning wake-up call, and that makes it all worth it. Yes, it does. <laughs> it really does. It, 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 it's a good way to ease into the end of the week. We got a nice little Friday show. We get to talk about our favorite things in the world, accountability, holding yes, people you know, to what they're supposed to be doing, and talking about the news, and, and doing all the fun stuff that... We do on the Friday morning wake-up call, which is, again, Long Island Life, national news, international issues uh, from the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. Coming up on today's show, uh, Puerto Rico power grid is in critical condition and officials are fearing a complete collapse. We have more on the NBA fake healthcare scam uh, arrests by federal authorities and a top... U.S. you know Supreme Court case is going to go over in terms of national security in regards uh, to Guantanamo Bay and uh, some of the interesting things that happened over uh, over that time period in the early 2000s. But with that being said, Sabil, let's jump into the first story of today. Earlier this week, a former Tesla employee spoke out uh, on. Instances that happened while he was employed there between 2015 and 2016 mm-hmm. uh, uh, of events of, uh, I would say, racist proportions uh, as, as to what this employee describes. Uh, he was told uh, to go back to Africa, to, uh, that he was called the N-word, and that there were racist and derogatory images in the factory's bathroom stalls. Um and as a result, you know, w- after a long legal battle, Tesla caved in and paid this man $137 million. Now, Sabil, I, like, you know, he mentions that he feels that justice has been served. <coughs> However, is there a price when it comes to you know, justice like this. Like, uh, obviously, it's important that this man is financially compensated for, you know, the civil trauma that was occurred from within the workplace. However, you know, as somebody who maybe is just like an uh, average Joe on the street seeing this story, it seems like one of a, a clear argument would be like, well, I guess anybody can just claim racism and get $137 million. And it's like, like I, I don't know. Like, where, where where do you see this fitting into the grand scheme of things? Um, 
I mean, I guess what would be more important than just this one person getting $137 million, even though I'm not, like, against that at all, but this isn't, like, the first time that someone sued Tesla over, um, you know, racism, like, allegations of racism. So I would have liked to see, like, what what Tesla itself as, like, a corporation is planning on doing for, like, training, like, anti-racist training. Um, but I mean, if so many black people experience racism, probably every black person in America. So if you could make $137 million, like, I mean, that sounds like reparations to me. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, (laughs) yeah, but I think what's more important than that is like doing like anti-racist training for all its employees. If this is like a common thing happening at Tesla. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. Um, they they came out with a email um, internally. Uh, this was Tesla's vice president of people uh, said that this is not the same Tesla of today. Um, she put a blog post on the website following the verdict. Uh, she said. While we strongly believe in that these facts don't justify the verdict reached by the jury in San Francisco, we do recognize that in 2015 and in 2016, we were not perfect. We're still not perfect. But we have come a long way from five years ago. Man, it it sure seems that when you say, based upon the facts, we just don't agree. And it's like, I I don't know. I mean, like, I guess that's like the most milquetoast way of putting it. But also at the same time, this goes to your point that like they're in denial a little bit. That like we want to be seen as this hip new company and that we're, we're, you know, we put all our racist days behind them, Seville. Can't you just accept that Tesla is like cool and like progressive <laughs> now? Like... And that they don't do racist things, obviously, because it was 2015. That's so long ago, Sabil. No? Honestly, I feel like whoever their PR chair, like, why would. That's not like the. I don't think denial is ever received well in cases like this when, like, instead of taking accountability, they're like, no, that didn't happen. Like, I don't know. I feel like. I don't know, just take accountability. That's what I love like about this is it's that like, you know, a huge corporation like Tesla that makes like a lot of money is being held accountable in some way. Um yeah. Yeah, I I, I also agree. I think that like the denial aspect of it uh stems more from from the verdict rather than uh, just saying that it didn't happen because they said we do recognize that we weren't perfect in 2015. But it's like, it's supposed to make this idea that they're, I think they're framing it in this way of like, it was a mistake. We didn't mean for this to happen. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's their... That's the cry that like they didn't mean to like, yes, were we racist to employees? Yes. Did we mean to be racist to employees? 
no, like that's essentially yeah. the no, the the statement. Like that's still denial in a sense. Yes, because, like it still happened under your like roof. And they admit it. Sense, and they admit so. it. And they just yeah, like we just don't agree that we had to pay. Yeah, that's like no, take accountability. It happened at Tesla. Yes. Um, and like. I guess it is kind of tricky because it's like how much control do they have over like what racist sentiments their employees make. But like at the same time, like I feel like every company should be trying to like do better by their, you know, employees, especially like the black employees who are experiencing racism because like you shouldn't have to choose to like just suck it up and face it every day just to like feed your family, which I think is like, sort of paraphrasing a quote that um diaz said uh so yeah uh, and tesla notably not the best place to work in the united states um elon musk has been very very adamant about you know crushing unionization efforts within within tesla uh he has you know added (laughs) essentially a factory of the future. Um, over since 2014, ambulances have been called more than a hundred times for workers experiencing fainting spells, dizziness, seizures, abnormal breathing, and chest pains, according to incidents by The Guardian. Uh, they employ 10,000 workers. Uh, Musk has said that, you know, he, they had been having a hard time working long hours on hard jobs, but he said he cares deeply about the health and well-being uh, of those employees. Again, I, I think it comes down to what type of culture that you want to create within your work environment. And, and you know, we're, we're seeing a massive labor shortage from the pandemic, and it's putting a lot of you know, rights back into the hands of workers again, where where they, you know, maybe were working jobs that they were told were replaceable, that there was always somebody up, the next man up mentality, that there was going to be, you know, somebody just eagerly stepping and fill those shoes for you. And now there just really isn't. So there's a little bit more bargaining power. And companies have to take notice that, like, they are, they can't be companies without workers. Yeah, definitely. It's all about the workers, and yet they're treated the worst, which sounds very American to me. But um, I don't know. Like, what else is there to say? Just do better. Just do better. <laughs> Just do better. So, Bill Ritzo, 88.7 FM, WRHU, Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Let's go into our next story of the day uh, where there have been – a, the Supreme Court will be hearing a case this week on the right to government secrecy. Uh, Abu uh, Zubayada uh, alleged that he was taken to a CIA black site in Poland and tortured before being detained in Guantanamo Bay in 2006. He subpoenaed two American U.S. officers, but the U.S. won't allow anything to be released in the interest of keep potential torture evidence secret uh, and for matters of, quote, national security. Now, this offer extends to 
the president due to um you know what they can what what they have jurisdiction over and you know certain uh bureaucracies in our country have somewhat of those powers but this is a this is a C- this is the CIA like this is like the where the tax dollars are going mm-hmm. so like do we have a right Sibyl, to know when uh our country is you know, using potential like black sites in Poland to torture people. Um, or should I, we not have to know that? I think we should know because, like, it is our country, and I feel like we should know, like, if our country's doing. Like, I I don't agree with torture, <laughs> no. so I feel like well we, done. Yeah, we <laughs> we have like a right to know if like that's where, like you said, that's where our tax dollars are going. That you know, if our loyalty lies with the na- with the nation that CIA tortures people, so yeah, I think we should know. Uh, to give a little bit more context to the story, uh, in two thousand two, uh, <coughs> excuse me, wow, <laughs> dry bit uh, of air in the morning. Can't. Mm-hmm. I'll have to get some water at some break at some point. But regardless, back in 2002, uh, the Bush administration believed that uh, Zubayada was a high-level terrorist recruiter, and he was taken to several black sites, including Thailand and Poland. And while in CIA, uh, under CIA custody, he was tortured, uh, Zubayada revealed in a U.S. Senate report that his personal interrogations included... 83 instances of waterboarding as well as sleep deprivation and 11 days of confinement in a coffin-like box. Uh, While in CIA custody, Mr. Zabayada also lost his left eye. Um, This... I I, I don't know. At a certain point... Yeah. At a certain point, right? I I I guess I'll go with this. Uh, you know what is what is a terrorist? And at a certain point, when you're searching for a terrorist recruiter, maybe doing the things that we want to fight, not doing in the world. You know, we don't like terrorism. That's not yeah. a good thing. So we like the whole idea of like the the Iraq war and, and you know 2002 stopping terrorism. How much how much torture before like, you know like if we read this about any other country, you know what I mean? We'd be up in arms that they waterboarded somebody 83 times, took their left mm-hmm. eye, sleep deprived them, spent the like had them spend 11 days alone in a coffin box essentially. Yeah. Like this is I don't know. At what point do you have to look in the mirror and be like, well, maybe the thing that we're doing to try and get these other guys, like, is not the best method or, you know, makes us look the best? Yeah, I don't think I've never, like, been a supporter of torture. Like, it kind of just seems like, I don't know, you're terrorizing someone for terrorism. It's kind of like a little backwards to me and like this is just like especially inhumane it's quite disturbing to hear about and like I I don't know I feel like 
like it shouldn't be a secret like to Americans like whether or not um you agree with torture or not because like I feel like I'm always like for people knowing the full truth so um hopefully like this man I mean I'm not sympathizing for this man because if he is a high level terrorist recruiter then like obviously he should be I don't know what should happen to him. Not tortured. Yeah, I just Not don't think tortured. that he should be tortured. Dexter, I, our, our trusty reporter, do you want to jump in on this? Yeah, I would say if he is a terrorist, then, again, I don't have any sympathy for him. But it seems like they just made this assumption that he was a terrorist recruiter without any real evidence. Like, if, if they find bomb residue on your hands and C4 in your apartment and have, a like, a picture of you at the site of a bombing like 10 minutes before it happens, then maybe not torture, but it's pretty good reason to like throw you in jail or something. But this guy from what this sounds like was just kind of just walking around just being just some guy. And then they're just like, you're a terrorist. And all of a sudden he's being tortured day in, day out. I mean, I'm sure there was like some reason for them to like think that he was a terrorist like I'm sure it didn't just come out of nowhere but to your point like I mean how do they truly know I feel like that's something like that we should be able to know how do you and then like make like an informed um, decision of whether <laughs> this is right or wrong um, uh, yeah, I, yeah um, so a little bit of context more mm-hmm. um, he has denied being a member of Al-Qaeda but sure, like he's had a diary and stuff that he's kept on on note. Um, when his friend was killed in the autumn of 1991, he turned to the journal for solace. He said, I opened up my bag, which was covered with dust. I got this notebook out of it, and I held the pen and started writing. Um, he wrote, my only friend is a cigarette. Uh, he continued to record his thoughts until he was captured. Um he wrote in the diary after the 9-11 attacks that he and his friends celebrated. He said, happiness was not enough. We were in a state of elation. And so that, to me, is what they've been using to justify the connection between recruitment. And, and I'm sure that they have other evidence. Like, it's the CIA. They bug yeah. everything. Like, whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, right, it, it comes down to is terror is fighting terrorism... A and, and you know I, I I put that in quotes, but like it's it can and cannot be. But is fighting terrorism that broad enough of an explanation to justify looking and bugging people and and you know having to grasp at people's diaries just to justify bringing them in and and giving them quote enhanced interrogation? I don't know. Have you watched? Uh, it was on Showtime for a little bit, but it was Sasha Barrett Cohen's "Who This Is America." No, I haven't. Or "Who Is that. America?" Um, and he so essentially Sasha Barrett Cohen does like a plethora of characters throughout the season, and he plays uh, up this part of a like Israeli like war general type of deal, like a, a trainer, like to to fight terrorism. And he gets an interview with Dick Cheney. And, you know, he talks to 
he talks to Cheney and, and he's like being like a little facetious. He's like, how does it feel to be like, you know, one of the be- like one of the biggest terrorist killers in the world? Like, you know, how many terrorists did you kill? It's incredible. Like all of these things. He gets him to sign like a water, like a, a fake waterboarding like jug and things like that. And like Cheney's just like going along with it because he knows that like, Ultimately, like what he did, he just did in power and like just was able to make money and was able to do things because he could. He was he talks about how he was so impressed by everything that they accomplished and everything that they did. And, you know, now we look back in 2020 and 2021 and, you know, we see the the, you know, leaving Afghanistan and and how all that's gone. So, yes, super glad all of this has happened. Very fun stuff. Uh, we love the news. Uh, Seville, any any other thoughts on does the government have a right to to withhold things for national security? Um, no, I think I've said everything that I have to say on it. I'm right. I, I, and Dexter, anything else you would like to add, my friend? Um, mm, not particularly, but well, I like the ums. They added a nice little a little bit of everything. It, if I did see that interview, and I will say, Dick Cheney very much did not seem to understand that it was a joke. Yeah. And he was very happy to brag about all the quote-unquote terrorists. Well, enhanced interrogation. Oh, yeah, well, you and, said terrorists, then, um, yeah. Sasha Baron Cohen afterwards was, uh, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he said something like, oh, yeah, my buddy murdered his neighbor last week. We call it enhanced tickling. Yeah, right, exactly. You know, the same outcome, but just whatever you call it is, is, yeah. is, what, is what you call it, you know? <laughs> uh, it's a great show. Uh, it does a lot of different things, really takes a look at the social construct of America. Uh, all over and and how different archetypes sort of fit in. 88.7 FM WRHU and streaming live on WRHU.org. We're also on Spotify, so if you're listening to this after the show is aired, thank you. That was very (laughs) kind to hit that play button. Please be sure to share it around so we can be the best morning show that we can be, the first and only morning show that's ever been created. 88.7 88.7 FM, WRHU, Hofstra's morning wake-up call. More coming up after the Shmavonian Report right now. Booyah. Hello. Welcome back to the Shmavonian Report. I'm Dexter Shmavonian. Recently, the state of California has continued a growing trend in the U.S. of ensuring that police officers be held accountable for their actions beyond simply being fired. In a much-needed change that came along with a slew of criminal justice reforms, including one forbidding the use of rubber bullets with the only exception being if another officer's life is in danger and they feel duty-bound to act. Cops can also be decertified from law enforcement and have their badges revoked. California is surprisingly one of the last states to pass legislation like this, but it sparks a positive change in U.S. law enforcement. With more on the subject is Assistant Professor Emeritus for the School of Criminal Justice at Michigan State University, Phil Schertzing. For for my first question, I just want to say, as you obviously know, California passed a law that allows biased or law-breaking police officers to have their badges revoked, as well as banning the use of rubber bullets and a number of other restrictions. I'm just kind of confused because it's really hard to tell how this is a new thing because cops could always have gotten fired and been removed from the force 
So what makes this different than just losing your job, essentially? The big difference is that uh, every state is different there. First of all, there's no national standard or law or regulation about the licensing or certification of police officers. So uh, every state handles it somewhat differently. In some states, they have statutes that directly uh, define uh, how a person or what you must do to qualify to be licensed or certified as a police officer. And uh, some states also have laws that uh, regulate decertification. The issue is, is that for misconduct, yes, a police officer could be fired, but what has historically happened is if a person is not decertified or does not lose their license, they could just get hired by another police department, either in that state or in some other state where they have reciprocity and recognize your professional uh, certification there. So you have so-called bad apples that would move from one department to another. And you're starting to see a reaction to that in many states where they are passing laws that say, no, if, if someone is fired, that has to be reported uh, somehow, or, and we have to prohibit or restrict this person just moving on to another police department where they could end up engaging in misconduct yet again. So it's, it's less about removing them from the force they're currently on and more about preventing them from getting another job and being a cop again. Well, it does both. If you get decertified or lose your licensure, then yes, you can no longer work for the department you were at at the time of the original misconduct, but it has the added benefit of now preventing you from moving on to another department and, and uh, causing problems there as well. So, on to my next question. California was far from the first state in the United States to pass a law like this. In fact, they were one of the last. A lot of most states in this country have already had some sort of law similar to this. With, with more states trying to hold police accountable, do you see there being a significant change in how they operate and how they conduct themselves in law enforcement over the next couple of years? Well, it will... It will take time now. For example, this California law, I'm not sure how common it is for states to have laws that include specifically um, acts of current bias as a grounds for decertification. In uh, Michigan, we've had decertification regulations for several years, but I don't recall that a demonstration of obvious bias is a, one of the specific kind of infractions that would lead to decertification. So I kind of suspect that California law may be somewhat unique in that respect. But uh, what may happen is other states may add that, but it will, it takes cases, uh, it takes case law, it takes uh, someone actually being decertified who will then probably fight it in some fashion, whether through a lawsuit or some administrative proceeding like with an arbitrator depending on the laws in the state and whether it ends up being enforced and and then uh, to what degree is this recorded or reported and you know does the state know how many uh, have actually been affected by this uh, that's the other thing is sometimes states are 
banks or don't have the regulation or regulations about the reporting to be able to really analyze and keep track and research. It, it's interesting you mentioned the lawsuits and the idea of uh, fired and decertified cops fighting back against the state. Just because, and it's something that's been an issue without through throughout history in the U.S., just because you can fire someone or just because you can decertify some, someone doesn't necessarily mean that they will be fired or decertified. How do you think you can make it so that people who deserve to, that don't deserve to be cops, get removed from the force and all forces permanently? Well, you have a certain burden of proof. So, for example, in criminal cases, in criminal court, you must prove someone is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, and uh, in labor law or in regulatory law, it's usually a lesser standard, a preponderance of the evidence. And uh, however, you can have someone that gets uh, in trouble, a police officer that engages in misconduct could be criminally prosecuted and found not guilty. They could be acquitted in criminal court because they did not meet the burden of reasonable doubt. They could still be administratively terminated or some other disciplinary action, and yet they can probably appeal to arbitration or to some administrative process or through a lawsuit, end up getting reinstated. So you can never guarantee uh, anything. Uh, I mean, I've seen so many cases where someone really should no longer be a police officer, and yet an arbitrator gave them their job back or a judge did a court order and uh, in a lawsuit and uh, and it probably depends on the uh, the climate and the specific labor law in every state and whether uh, particular police officers are protected by uh, an association or union that has relatively strong collective bargaining rights uh, you know that can um, make a difference as well so there's always a chance of something being overturned. The same thing when a police officer makes a valid criminal arrest, the person could be convicted in court, and then later uh, it could be overturned on appeal. Uh, you know, and that happens and always has happened in our history. Well, Professor Schertzing, thank you for your time. It's my pleasure, and good luck with the program. That's all for today on this week's episode of the Schmavonian Report. Be sure to tune in next week, and remember... Stay schmavi. Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Morning wake-up call. Wow. Riveting. Another great interview. Uh, again, thank you to Professor Schertzwig over at... Schertzing. Schertzing, I'm sorry. I appreciate you on, uh, on giving me that uh, pronunciation. Over at MSU. Uh, Dexter... What was the biggest thing... Uh, first of all, I'll say this. If you wanted to hear more of that interview... Go over to Spotify. Not right now. Like, in about 30 minutes, whenever the show is over, uh, go into Spotify and, and go to Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call. Listen to that full interview, uh, unedited, uh, uncut. Still got about some, uh, a couple extra minutes of content in there for you. But, Dexter, what was your biggest takeaway from your conversation uh, with uh, Professor Schertzing? Well, I think, because on the surface... This whole law, it it seems like kind of a non-law where it just sounds like, oh, you can fire cops now, but you could always fire cops, but they would just get, as he said, you could just get hired by another department. But now 
with the decertification law. And this is a thing that California is actually kind of late to do this. A lot of other states have passed laws similar to this. You can outright decertify them. So before, if, say, you got fired by the LAPD, you could just go to San Francisco or pr- maybe somewhere further Wherever. away in LA and just basically they wouldn't know about your past because it's a whole different department and you could just probably just lie to them and they'll be like, okay, well, you know, you're hired and then you just do the same thing again. But now if you, if you, or if you kill someone who kill an unarmed civilian or something, or are just a dirty cop in LA, San Francisco can't hire you because due to what you did in LA, you no longer have certification to be a cop. You're basically just banned from all the police departments, essentially. Well, I, I, I could speak from the experience of, you know, my father's a teacher. Uh, all teachers are in a national database when it comes to teaching certifications. And if you mess up, if you uh, have inappropriate relations with a student, if you have uh, some type of uh, thing that affects your teaching ability and the school chooses to, to move forward with it, you can no longer teach pretty much everywhere. You can only really, like, you have to go to places that don't look for, for that type of record. But even then, it becomes extremely difficult to get a teaching job when you're not teaching certified. So... I, I, I get the move. Uh, I, I'm a fan of the move. I, I personally think that like these public service jobs should have some type of accountability system where you can't just hop from one train to the next to be able to, to find uh, that job within that profession, uh, especially when that profession is protecting and serving the American people. Uh, one other thing I got from Schertzing, though, is he pointed out that because of all the, because of how well known, because of social media, how easy it is for stuff like this, stuff like George Floyd and stuff to just get around in everyone's information. Everyone has, for somewhat good reason, has sort of soured on their opinion of cops. But there, there are still cops out there that want to do the right thing, that don't want, that only like make arrests only arrest people that actually deserve to get arrested. And when you allow guys like Derek Chauvin to keep serving, and I mean, Derek Chauvin's going to prison, but uh, that's just an example. It makes the jobs of the good cops a lot harder because nobody trusts them because of stuff other guys did. And it destroys the reputation of the entire police force. And if guys, if bad cops aren't held accountable, then pretty much no cop can really do their job. Uh, I will give a quick little thing, and then I'll let you, Sibyl, get your two cents uh, onto this. I think that, you know, there is something to be said for, you know, cops doing the right thing and, and, you know, protecting and serving. And, you know, I've, you know, growing up and and doing all those things, I knew the local cops. I knew the local police. Like, that's that was just something that was a part of my, you know, daily life, you know, growing up in Pennsylvania, middle of nowhere, PA. Uh, very rural area. I would say that, you know, at the same time, though, there's a di- like there were two other officers who were standing next to Chauvin, right? Like, it, it, it takes uh, a- as much as 
there are good cops who want to go out and do the right thing. There is also, in many police departments, a code of silence or a code of, you know, not being able to to rat out on your on your buddy and hold them accountable, uh, because of the oath that you take or the connection that you have within the police department. You know, there uh, uh, there's a lot of politics that goes into it, and I think that. You know, if you're not willing to call out that system or call out your your fellow officers, then maybe, you know, in regards to, with the exception of wanting to do your job of putting bad people away into jail, then maybe you aren't doing the fullest extent of your job by not holding the other police officers accountable. So, Bill. Yeah, I think that's a lot of times what, that's a lot of the reason why I'm, like, hesitant to, like, um, deem some police officers as good cops. Um, because a lot of times, like, even if they haven't, like, done something, like, outrightly wrong, um, in the way that they, like, handle civilians, um, a lot of them are bystanders, uh, yeah, bystanders, and, like, I agree with you, I think that, like, there definitely needs to be, like, some form of accountability to, like, prevent that, so. Uh, Dexter, uh, let me ask you this, you know, Recently in Nassau County here in New York, there was a law that allowed police that was on the docket that was going to allow police to sue protesters and and to to give uh, more rights to to police Uh, out of. I don't know if you talked about this with Schertzing or you uh, just mainly focused on the um, focused on California. But have are we seeing potentially a dichotomy between investment in the rights of those uh, from police officers and the rights of the police officers on the opposite spectrum? Well, we did we did talk about decertified cops potentially uh, suing their uh, the department that took their badge and stuff. I I. Don't think I, I think they should be able to obviously defend themselves in court. You shouldn't just say you did this and there's no way you can prove that you didn't do this. There's no way it was another guy that did right. it. But you shouldn't you shouldn't be able to sue the protesters. Yeah. You shouldn't be able to sue someone. You can't because that would essentially just be saying I'm suing you because you don't like me. Mm-hmm. Like that that'd be like if like I I I don't know like punch Sibyl's brother in the face and then I'm like and she would obviously be mad at me and then I'd be like hey I'm suing you cuz you're mad at me for something that I you know yeah it it's it, a little bit it's like that's it's a, that's that's example. one way to yeah Sibyl you got you got to watch out for your brother you got you got to make sure <laughs> yeah, right. when Dexter's around <laughs> he, he always loves punching brothers that's, that's the thing he's known for around here uh, I, I I hear that. Um, I I think that there is so, I, and you know we've talked about this on the show before. That that's quintessentially what the new abortion law in Texas does is it puts the burden onto uh, the civilian to start legal trouble, yeah. uh, where you can essentially sue anybody who has been within the process of of helping somebody get the abortion. Um, Whether that's the doctor, the bus driver, whatever, 
you can mm-hmm. sue them and and you don't have to know them they don't have to be from your area you don't have to necessarily have proof that it happened you just have to make the report um and and to me again this is it's weird because it's like yes the the legal system should provide accountability and that yes of course there should be lawsuits going in for people to be able to do that but like at, at what point do we run into unnecessary legal trouble uh, is my question. I don't know. Um, any final thoughts on, you know, California, this police bill, uh, the Schertzig interview? Uh, Dexter, we'll start with you. Any last words? Um, I, I would just say that it's because, like I said, California is one of the actually one of the last states to pass uh, legislation like this. So. I'd say it marks a positive trend in the United States of cops actually being held accountable. I mean, yeah, you're already a Friday show regular <laughs> using the word accountable. Continue, man. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. <laughs> uh. De- par- if it all also depends on like if the chiefs in the department they have to be against police brutality if they're if they are one of the like oh you can't you can't hold cops accountable like i don't know how how many of you uh listeners watch brooklyn 99 but mm-hmm. there's a character o'sullivan and he's just like oh how, how can he do his job if he's being held responsible for his actions and yeah right <laughs> obviously he's a parody of those types of people but less exaggerated versions of that guy exist and if those types of people are in in charge of the departments uh, and in like powerful positions, not just in the police department, but in just the city government, then this law will essentially be useless because nobody will willing to be willing to actually use it if they're not like directly against police brutality and really want to hold those types of cops accountable. Oh, right. Uh, I mean, there's a little bit of truth in in humor and in, in, in almost everything. I would say that, like, all humor is based with a little bit of truth. So uh, very, very good there. Uh, Sibyl, final thoughts, words, opinions, anything for the good of the order? Um, I don't think I have anything. Oh, sweet. <laughs> Let's go into our next story. Let's talk about Puerto Rico's power grid. Uh, Sibyl, you want to take us in? Yeah, um, Puerto Rico is in the process of declaring a state of emergency due to critical condition of its generating power plants. A private company called Luma has been in charge of the transmission and distribution of electricity since June. Since then, hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of Puerto Ricans on the island have been subjected to constant blackouts. They also experienced longer service restoration times, poor customer service, and voltage fluctuations that often damaged appliances and other home electronics. Many members of Congress are concerned that the instability is going to lead to a complete collapse of the grid in the near future. Even Luma described the system's condition as critical. Um, So this is like, I don't know, this is pretty big. Like, I'm surprised not more people are talking about it because I feel like I feel like Congress's concern is like what freaked me out the most. Um, it's kind of unfortunate, like the timing, because this is like in the middle of Hispanic Heritage Month, and then here Puerto Rico is, and it's like, dang, <laughs> dang. <laughs> um, yeah, I, 
I mean, this is this reminds me somewhat of the Flint, Michigan case, mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that this was a power grid that, for the most part, you know, was the part of the had only really one power authority, the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, and then there was privatization within bringing in Luma into the power grid, and that privatization effort has created issues. And I'm not saying that you don't need to... Pri- I'm saying I'm not saying that, like, we need to not privatize power, uh, like, electrical power, but what I'm saying is, is that a move that was made that was unnecessary, uh, may per- perhaps unnecessary. Uh, in the case of Flint, Michigan, it was completely unnecessary. Um, is causing people to suffer as a result. Now, this isn't going to have a long-lasting effect as like drinking lead in in your water, but this will, you know, this is going to cause some some pain this is gonna cause food to go out this is gonna cause restaurants to have to to restock this is gonna cause america or this is gonna cause puerto ricans uh who you know don't have great insulation or or things along those lines like obviously it's a little bit of a warmer climate in puerto rico but Mm -hmm. uh you know there is there's still a need for some type of of air conditioning or, or some type of you know power to be able to regulate your your area and make sure that you're not you know feeling the full effects of of puerto rican sun um yeah i i I think that it's tough because on on the one hand you want people to be able to to go off and do these things and and own electrical companies but at the same time like we you got to make sure that people have power right (laughs) like can't just not be a good power company yeah, and, like, I'm also interested to see, in like, what the U.S. is going to do because, um, I mean, according to this NBC article, more than $11, million, $11 billion in federal funds have been approved by Congress to um, upgrade Puerto Rico's power system, but no money has been dispersed yet um, because they're pending further approval of specific projects that would help accomplish such a goal but like I don't know I hope that the U.S. does more because I like a lot of times it's felt like the U.S. is um you know always claiming um Puerto Rico as a territory but then like completely like neglecting the people of Puerto Rico which is like a whole different thing but Hopefully, like, hopefully something happens soon because, like, protests are already taking place um, in Puerto Rico because they're seeing, a f- like, the people of, like, the Puerto Ricans are seeing a fourth increase of their electric bill, like, just in this year. And they already pay twice as much um, as, like, U.S. US um, power customers. So, I don't know. It's very concerning. I think personally that the u.s uses puerto rico and some of its territories as like um not like a breeding ground but like a a capitalist like safe haven Mm -hmm. where you can go and use these resources and and sort of just like uh you know drum up 
complete privatization of uh, of society and sort of work on these things where uh, and to me I think that's the issue with what's holding up this money is they don't know where to send it to and so they don't know what company to give it to and so they don't know where to where to give the subsidies to be able to to help sustain this power because they're not going to give it to to Puerto Rico like the like legit legitimately like you know the the head of state uh in Puerto Rico they'll they'll give it to to whatever wherever they see fit and i think that's sort of where i want to take this conversation a little bit before we jump into our next one is in times of crisis you know especially during this pandemic or or even after the hurricane that saw them have the second longest blackout in the world uh, back when I believe it was Hurricane um, Hurricane Maria, uh, back in 2017, um, they had the second largest blackout. In times of crisis, oh yeah, because that was the one where Trump was like throwing paper towels uh, oh, to people. The way I forgot about that. Yeah, that was crazy. Right, 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 right. And so. Um, I love how that's how the the image that we have after you know yeah. again another example of like the the U.S. government um, sort of just waiting and and seeing what best option suits them rather than trying to suit the people uh, who need the help. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're U.S. They they're you they're Puerto Ricans, but like if we're gonna claim yeah. them as a territory, then they're U.S. citizens. And I'm sorry, but like according to the preamble of the Constitution. We need to promote the general welfare of the American people, and that includes Puerto Rico. So we should probably promote their welfare a little bit. Yes, quote the Constitution. I they, people hate it when you quote the Constitution, <laughs> man. The founding fathers. Uh, Dexter, you got something for me? Yeah. Um, I feel like we might as well just make Puerto Rico a state. Like, yeah. It would be mm -hmm. so much easier to resolve this stuff if we made Puerto Rico just a state. But that also, and also I don't see that that would be good for the government because then that's more people to tax. Yeah. And you know, I, we all know how politicians love money and love being in charge of people and they can do more of that if uh, Puerto Rico's a state and they can, and for P Puerto Ricans wanna be a part of the US, they're, they've been wanting it for years now and there'd be more available resources to them should they become a state so i and i know it's like kind of a generic point that's been beaten to death but you know it's pretty true so yeah we're definitely not the first to make this point but like when's it gonna happen um yeah because like it's just like i don't know they're just going through too much right now and i just feel like america needs to be like more involved in helping out the people well, fun fact, Puerto Rican citizens pay federal income tax. So, like, this is, is like, the move for statehood is not that of uh, get taxes. It's give me representation mm -hmm. for my taxes, you know? Like, this is... This is taxation without representation at its very core. Yeah, we're the uh, Brits now. Though. We are the Brits. Oh, <laughs> believe it or not. Yeah, a little colony across the across the sea. Plus, we got an international empire, essentially, that it doesn't work the same way, but we 
we have the same level of power that the Brits did in the 17th century. So yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I mean, we're we're one T tax away, as they say. One tax on the T. See what happens, and uh, and we'll go from there. But uh, rounding out our last story of the day, Sibyl, have you? I mean, <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I, I'm a huge NBA guy. So when I saw this story break, I was like, what? No, <laughs> no way. That 18 former NBA players are arrested by federal authorities in an alleged healthcare scam. So, Bill, take us into it. Yeah, I mean, it's basically exactly what you said. Um, they they were charged with attempting to defraud the NBA's health and welfare benefit plan out of nearly $4 million. Um, the, the, you know, these include Terrence Williams, Alan Anderson, Anthony Allen, Shannon Brown, William Bynum. I'm, I mean, should I even name all of them? I, I mean, I can give you the notable ones. Okay. Uh, Cause I wouldn't know. There's Glenn Davis, <laughs> AKA Glenn, big baby Davis. Um, <laughs> I would say that Jamario Moon is a name that people would remember. Darius Miles. I Ru- feel like I recognize the name Antoine Wright. Antoine Wright has been in the league. He was on, uh, I believe Detroit for a little bit. And then former Philadelphia 76er, who I'm sad to see on this list, Anthony Tony Roten. Uh, <laughs> I, dude was a crazy good basketball player, apparently not good at committing insurance fraud. Um, man, it's... Why, I, I, like, I just... So, uh, I guess according to the story, they, they would invoice the NBA, essentially... Like false invoices about their injuries, right? So they would get yeah. compensated. Um, wow! Like yeah. I, I like. I mean, my thing is like, why? Because like, don't they make so much money? So I don't understand like why they had to like commit insurance fraud. Um, like according to this article, they're now each facing counts of a con- of conspiracy uh, to commit to healthcare and wire fraud. And, you know, 16 out of 18 of them have been taken into custody. And I'm just like, but couldn't this couldn't this have been afford like avoided? Because I don't do they need the money? I, I. All right. So I will say that some players can choose how they get paid. So uh-huh. some players get paid per game. Some okay. players get paid every week. Some players get paid every two weeks. Some people get paid like. Eight point something million dollars at uh, at every quarter, like not like quarter of the game, but like uh, every quarter of the year. To me, the funniest part is how they got caught. Like they didn't plot out days and like (laughs) like do it correctly. They just like put stuff down. So they put in 2018 uh, an example was that a player was playing for the Houston Rockets, submitted a claim. Uh, for IV sedation, a root canal, and crowns that he alleged that happened back in 2018 mm-hmm. in Beverly Hills, California. And so the prosecutor put travel records, emails, and publicly available box scores showed that he was playing professional basketball in Taiwan that week and thus could not have been in Beverly Hills receiving a root canal also, in December. What kind of basketball injury... Re- 
makes you require a root canal. Well, hey, no, no, like, I mean, I this is health insurance. Like, yeah. So this is know. like, this is like essentially like if you got health insurance from wherever, wherever oh. you choose to work. This is the yeah. NBA's plan. But they are, what they're doing is they filed claims for services that they never received uh, and, and got more money from, from, from that program. There, there's several players uh, filed root canals and all, perfor- all supposedly performed on the same 16th in April 2016, oh, man. All right. Well, Tony Roten was gone from he he was named in this part of it, but he was gone from the Sixers at that point. So he wasn't committing fraud at that point. But the trio also put in payments for crowns done on the same 16th, a year or a month later. Mm-hmm. So like, it it just seemed like these guys like just thought of this as like an endless it was a like game. money. Yeah, like endless money like machine like you know what i mean yeah yeah i mean i just think it's like it's just kind of interesting um to me how like i feel like a lot of celebrities i think it's funny well i don't want to say funny but i think it's interesting when they get um caught for like committing crimes such as this like having to do with money because like i don't know like shakira shakira is also we talked about her last week coincidentally but she's like also being like investigated for tax fraud in Spain. Um, and it's just like, I don't know, it just seems so unnecessary because I know like you explained that like um, they get different forms of payment, but they do still get paid a lot regardless, it seems. So yeah. no, they do. They get paid millions of dollars. Like the league yeah. minimum is like six figures, like, yeah. 600 like it's like $725,000 is like the league minimum. I'm just glad the Sixers player that got that was involved in this wasn't Ben Simmons because if that happened there would be no way we were tr- we'd be able to trade that <laughs> yeah, guy. Yeah, imagine committing insurance he, fraud and being a terrible basketball player. Couldn't And be also ben. just a whiny loser that That's a good point. doesn't even work. <laughs> oh, Ben. Dang. Dang. That's a that's some hardcore statements. Once again, all thoughts and opinions stated here <laughs> on Hostage Morning Wake Up Call do not reflect those of 88.7 FM, Radio Host University, the Board of Trustees, as well as the university as a whole. Whether you're Ben Simmons or not, that email programming at WRHU.org uh, if you got a problem with that. Uh, that's going to do it for the show today. Uh, Sibyl, have you looked into any more boar stories? I haven't. I haven't uh, yet. They're but coming. I definitely will. I've, I've mentioned it to people. Good. I feel like I needed to spread awareness Are you the getting boars. weird looks? <laughs> like, do you get, like, do people well, seem confused at first? Yeah, but then there were also some people who were, like, already, like, well aware of the boars. I was like... Oh, my people like are out there. Yeah, your people are out there. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I just can't. I keep thinking about boars. It just makes me smile. Um, <laughs> anywho, that's going to do it for today's morning wake up call. Thank you, everybody, for uh, tuning in. Thank you to Associate Professor at the School of Criminal Justice at Michigan State University, uh, Phil uh, Zerding. Uh, Zerding. Our shooting, and uh, wow, I what a day. In the words of my father, go be good out there. Go learn something, ladies and gentlemen. We'll see you all next week. Tune in on Spotify.